Welcome to the Decolonial Dialogues podcast, where diverse voices from decolonial and anti-colonial scholars to activists and grassroots movements, as well as intellectuals from all over the world, share thought-provoking conversations, interviews, and analysis. In today's episode, we bring an intriguing question. Did colonialism shape our modern world as we know it? Today, we have Mohamed El Naim, the DCC's director, bringing a wealth of experience as an activist of the Black Lives Matter movement and as a Cambridge PhD candidate scholar. We also have with us today Yasmin Carpenter, the DCC's program manager, bringing her expertise as a Brazilian researcher and activist for epistemic justice. Everybody is talking about decolonizing these days. Decolonize your curriculum. Okay, nice. Decolonize your diet. I can get that. Decolonize finance. Decolonize walking. Decolonize camping. You know my grandma's day to decolonize in a lot of places, like Algeria, if you've watched the Battle of Algiers, meant to pick up a gun. Which, by the way, is not what I'm advising, but I'm just saying. So here we want to decolonize all the decolonizations. We want to be a forum for those who are engaging in the decolonization that ends all decolonization. At the Decolonial Center, we believe that European colonialism shaped the modern world, the modern world is dying, and that only the undoing of colonialism is the key to the preservation of our biosphere and the emancipation of humankind. We need to decolonize, but why are we only talking about European colonialism? Haven't there been other big empires? What about the Mongols, for example? We always talk about Britain, but wasn't Britain once occupied by the Romans? Nobody can deny that telling the history of empire is indeed telling the history of human civilizations. And historically, there have been huge mainly land-based empires around the world for thousands of years, many of them lasting for centuries, four of them into the 20th century, the Ottoman, Russian, Austro-Hungarian and Chinese land-based empires. But it's only Western European seaborne empires who have made the modern world in their own image. You know that during the height of imperialism in the 19th century, especially the last decade of the 19th century, the only brown empire, Japan, literally had to consciously Europeanize to become one. I mean, they literally sent people to go to the West to learn the techniques of statecraft. To just give you an example, if you go to a wedding in my country of origin, Sudan, the groom will be wearing a suit and the bride a dress. If you go to Dakar in Senegal or Paris in France, you can get around with French. While if you go to Luanda and Angola and Lisbon, Portugal, you can get around with Portuguese. If you go to Fiji and Oceania, many of the population is actually Indian. And if you go to Jamaica, which is in the Caribbean, many of the population are African. And so why is it that when you go to any developing country, the skyscrapers look the same, the McDonald's menu looks the same. People go to formal events and weddings and graduations, dressing in skirts and suits and pants and ties like me right now. Why am I in fact talking to you in English? The scholar and activist Sivanandan once said, we are here because you were there. Or to put it in another way, the answer is colonialism. Now, some think that this has nothing to do with them. All right, well, they're wrong. Because in 2022, when many of the world's governments convened a task force, to study the causes of global warming, scientists concluded that European colonialism was actually a leading reason for anthropogenic climate change. 
that's climate change caused by humans. Colonialism actually still shapes modern day indicators like poverty and the environment and the economy. So why don't we understand this? What differentiates European empire from the rest of the empires of the world is that it shaped the world in its own image. But European empires were of course not the first people to build empires. 4,000 years ago in Southwest Asia, for example, empires arose with rulers like Sargon the Akkadian and Hammurabi. The Assyrians were expansionists and slaughtered alien peoples. The Greeks built colonies which were trading posts all across the Mediterranean and the Persian Empire led by Cyrus the Great had vast territories of their own. The Mongol Empire was the largest land-based empire in history. But by 1800, Europe, its colonies and ex-colonies covered half the land surface of the world. And by the First World War in 1914, that had increased to about 85%. That had never been done in the history of empire. Now, there were two particularly violent prequels to the European domination of the planet that happened in the 19th century. The first significant historical event is the conquest of the Americas. It's essential to understand that when Christopher Columbus set out to find a direct route to India, he stumbled upon lands that were already inhabited and flourishing with civilizations. Christopher Columbus didn't discover anything. He only found people that lived there and then called them Indian. The encounter between the Spanish colonizers and the native populations was incredibly violent and devastating. According to the Cambridge Economic History of Latin America, in 1492, the native population was estimated to be around 50 to 60 million. By the mid 17th century, that number had drastically reduced to a shocking five or six million. The massive decline in population was a result of various factors, including the introduction of deadly old world disease. But brutal institutions that controlled and exploited the native peoples was also a contributing factor, as was the birth of the transatlantic slave trade, when in response to the demographic catastrophe that the Spanish caused, they brought in African slaves. Those African slaves, like the Europeans, brought with them diseases that the immune systems of the local inhabitants just couldn't handle. And that brings us to the second act of violence, which was the transatlantic slave trade involving African human beings. This was not the first instance of slavery in history. Slavery has existed for thousands of years and has been practiced by various empires across the world. Even during the time of the transatlantic slave trade, other slave trades, such as the Trans-Saharan and the Red Sea and the Indian Ocean slave trades were also happening. And many of them were brutal. Many Arab slave traders, for instance, engaged in violent practices like castrating their male slaves. But what set European slavery apart was its unparalleled intensity and scale over two centuries. 12 million Africans were forcibly taken from their homelands and reduced to chattel slaves, treated as mere property. Not only were they subject to unimaginable hardships, but their children were also born into slavery. That was a vicious cycle. Eric Williams, the first prime minister of Trinidad, extensively analyzed the link between slavery and capitalism in his book, Capitalism and Slavery. He argued that slavery played a significant role in fueling the industrial revolution. Modern research actually supports his thesis, shedding light on the deep-rooted impacts of slavery, not only on the descendants of slaves, 
but on the birth of the capitalist global economy. By the 19th century then, European empires weren't just imperialist, they were also capitalist. In that kind of world, the separation between Europe and the rest of the world was best expressed in a late Victorian poem. Whatever happens, we have got the Maxim gun and they have not. In what is now Namibia, the Herero and Namaqua tribes rose up against oppressive German settler rule in 1904 and 1905. By then they'd been reduced to slaves. In response to an understandable armed uprising, the German army was dispatched to exterminate approximately 50 to 65,000 of them leaving no man, woman or child alive. Women and children were starved to death and their wells were poisoned. Many who tried to cross the desert to escape were shot. As the general who commanded the genocide put it, every male Herero, armed or unarmed, will be shot to death. I will no longer take in women or children, but will drive them back to their people or have them fired at. It was Germany's first genocide in the 20th century and some scholars have not uncontroversially, argued that it set the template for the Holocaust. One of those scholars is Amy Césaire, the Martinican poet who argued in his timeless classic, The Discourse on Colonialism, that as far as the Christian bourgeois was concerned, without him even knowing it, open quote, he has a Hitler inside him, that Hitler inhabits him, that Hitler is his demon, that if he rails against him, he is being inconsistent and that at bottom, what he cannot forgive Hitler for is not the crime in itself, the crime against man. It is not the humiliation of man as such. It is the crime against the white man, the humiliation of the white man and the fact that he applied to Europe colonialist procedures, which until then had been reserved exclusively for the Arabs of Algeria, the coolies of India, and the of Africa. Many probably rightly find it both trivializing and unnecessary to compare the Holocaust with colonialism. Both were violent in their own ways. But in other cases, Hitler himself did it. In 1942, Hitler tried to motivate his men who were planning to conquer Russia. He said, let's learn from the English, who with 250,000 men in all, including 50,000 soldiers, governed 400 million Indians. Certainly Europeans were not violent because they were European. They were violent because they were successful. The Japanese were extremely violent and wars of extermination were practiced by virtually every empire before the rise of the European empires. So it would be inaccurate and dishonest to say that Europeans just didn't take opportunities that other empires wouldn't have taken. Imperialism, whoever is doing it, is violent. And yes, a lot of this talk about violence is grim, but there actually is hope. Part of that hope lies in anti-colonialism, a powerful movement that united people globally, demanding an end to foreign imperialism and fighting for liberation. Two prominent historical examples of resistance against colonial oppression, in the case of the British, were the Sepoy Mutiny in India and the Morant Bay Rebellion in Jamaica. Of course, there were many, many more, but these are just two examples. The Sepoy Mutiny, also known as the Indian Rebellion of 1857, was a significant uprising against British rule in India. Local infantrymen, known as Sepoys, who served the East India Company, rose up and rebelled against their British overlords, bringing together Hindus and Muslims in the fight against oppressive colonial rule. Then there was the Morant Bay Rebellion, which took place in 1865 in Jamaica 
30 years after slavery was abolished. Led by the pastor Paul Bogle, it started as a peaceful protest against the unjust incarceration of a black Jamaican, but escalated into a nationwide uprising against harsh living conditions and the oppressive colonial system. Does that sound familiar? Anti-colonial struggles weren't just waged in the colonies. An inspiring figure for me, for example, is Ernest Jones, a leader in the working class radical movement known as Chartism. He declared, amidst the rebellion in India that we just described, that the defeat of British colonialism there would lead to the defeat of the ruling class in Britain. Understanding that the struggles were deeply intertwined, he knew that he had to stand with the Indian people. Here are some of my other heroes. Claudia Jones, the visionary founder of the Notting Hill Carnival. She's celebrated a lot for that, but many people don't mention that she was a communist and a feminist who used her activism to challenge colonial and racial inequalities in Britain. Not only did she fight for the liberation of her people, she was deeply internationalist and one of the first people to argue that black women had a privileged role in overthrowing imperialism. Her grave, if you want to visit it, is right next to Karl Marx. CLR James, a leading Trotskyist thinker, another socialist tradition, was deeply involved in organizing for African independence, paving the way for future African presidents like Hastings Banda and Jomo Kenyatta and Kwame Nkrumah, although all of these he later disagreed with in life. Then there was George Padmore. He dedicated his life to supporting African liberation movements. Padmore believed that only by helping the colonized peoples in their struggles for national freedom, could workers in Britain achieve social emancipation? One of my favorite quotes from him is this, for British workers to think of building socialism without first getting power, getting rid of the capitalist class at home, is self-deception. The reason why he said that was because he tried to get British workers to understand that their ruling class was the same ruling class that was oppressing the people in the colonies. To continue the quote, he said, the colonial peoples are the potential allies of the workers against a common enemy, the British imperialist class. That is the kind of spirit we want to bring back with the decolonial center. I'll pass on to Yasmin, who can explain some of the ideas behind another school of thought called decoloniality, a school of thought born on her continent, Latin America, and one which has a powerful critique of the modern day global system. Over to you, Yasmin. As Mo just said, colonialism has actually never ended. Along with the long-standing struggle of anti-colonialism, we also have the traditional thoughts and practices known as decoloniality. But before we can talk about what decolonial means, we actually need to talk about what coloniality is. So historical colonialism, as explained, was characterized by an imposed social, cultural, and economic system onto a people and their territory through formal institutions, and this was normally for the benefit of just a few in the colonizing metropolis. Coloniality, on the other hand, refers to the legacies of colonialism that still persist in our lives today, but more than that, it refers to how the violences of historical colonialism shaped the modern world as we know it. The word modern here is key. So the decolonial tradition understands that modernity started in 1492 when Cristobal Columbus set foot in what would be known as the Americas. That is because the so-called 
modern world, which consisted just of Europe, of course, could only come into existence through the exploitation of the peoples and lands of the Americas, as well as of those in Africa that were made victims to the slave trade. One prominent Latin American scholar, Walter Mignolo, affirms in regards to Latin America, and here I quote, This is the land that gave initiation, substance, and form to the coloniality of power, its system of social classification based on the idea of race, of conquerors over conquered, and its structural foundation tied to modernity and Eurocentered capitalism. The control of labor and subjectivity, the practices and policies of genocide and enslavement, the pillage of life and land, and the denials and destruction of knowledge, humanity, spirituality, and cosmo-existence became the modus operandi of this new model and pattern of power that later traveled the globe. That was a mouthful, let's break that down. So we've heard a little about the many violences that the historical enterprise of colonialism entailed, such as the torture, enslavement, and genocide it carried out. But I want to go deeper into one specific dimension of these violences, which is epistemicide. So it's easy to miss that along with all the peoples that were killed and destroyed in the name of quote-unquote progress, entire cultures, beliefs, and systems of knowledge were also either wiped out or relegated to a place of subalternity. Here, I want to bring back a question that Mo asked in the beginning of this episode, which is, why is it that we do, for example, weddings the way we do, you know, with a bride and a groom wearing dresses and suits and ties? Also, why am I, a Brazilian, talking to you in English, which is a dominant language throughout the world? Last but not least, why is it that if you're studying any field of social sciences in any university around the globe, it is very likely that you will be reading the same authors from the same five European countries most of the time. The answer to all of this is epistemicide. That is, the destruction and subjugation of knowledges carried out by the colonial enterprise and its legacies. That means that starting with the genocide of the peoples in the Americas and Africa in the 1500s, Europeans started a process of eliminating the ways in which these people viewed, interpreted, and explained reality. All of those ways of existing in this planet and the centuries-long knowledges that accompanied them that were not those of the colonizers started to be exterminated or at least criminalized, persecuted, and overall deemed and treated as inferior. This allowed the Europeans to impose their will onto the world not only through force but also through the narratives they created, through all of their rationality and ways of thinking. This points us to why, again, European colonialism is different from all others, because there is no other group of powers in history that was so successful in imposing their own views onto the rest of the world and ensuring that these views thrived. The economic and political domination of Europe over its colonies needed justification. You know, they were killing millions of people, enslaving and torturing millions of people. So they were happy to provide a whole set of ideologies to self-justify what they were doing. And these ideologies still persist to this day and have developed into other forms. So one concept that I wanted to bring up that actually really summarizes the feeling of these self-serving justifications is contained and reflected in the infamous poem by Rudyard Kipling, which is The White Man's Burden. Here goes a piece of it. He says, Take up the white man's burden, send forth the best you breed. Go bind your sons to exile to serve your captives' need. To waiting heavy harness on fluttered folk and wild, your new-caught sullen peoples, half-devil and half-child. 
half devil and half child. If it isn't already obvious, Western rationality is perversely self-centered, annihilating differences and dehumanizing the others. Those others that Kipling claim to be half devil and half child, that is, you know, those peoples that they deemed to be evil by their Christian standards and incapable of taking care of themselves, requiring the benevolent domination of the white men to bring them progress and to bring them into the civilized world as subjects, of course. So it was through genocide and epistemicide that Europe managed to put itself into the position of center of the world as the reference of what is morally desirable and acceptable, as the reference of what society should look like and how it should be built. Ramon Grosfogel, another prominent Latin American scholar, put it simply when talking about the non-West, and here I also quote, We went from the characterization of peoples without writing in the 16th century to the characterization of peoples without history in the 18th and 19th centuries to that of peoples without development in the 20th century and more recently to that of peoples without democracy in the 21st century. Another element of Western rationality is reflected in that quote from Grossogel, which is the notion of linear progress. So upon encountering the native peoples of the Americas, the Europeans weren't able to just understand their ways of living as simply different, but instead they understood those as primitive and devoid of any type of intelligence and technology. It's not uncommon for people to feel that way about indigenous nations and indigenous peoples to this day. If you ever caught yourself thinking that indigenous peoples are primitive in any way, shape or form, you are likely convinced of that through this very pervasive Eurocentric narrative of linear progress. So upon encountering difference, Europe determined that everything that was different from itself was actually several steps back in this ladder toward civilization of which they were, of course, the last step, you know, the reference, as we were saying. So different peoples in different lands were placed differently in this letter. No other country and no other group of peoples was considered to be in the same level of development and quote-unquote civilization as Europe. Now that we've laid out some of the elements of the hierarchy that Europe built between itself and the rest of the world, I want to take a step back and talk a bit more about the framework that allowed me to do this explanation. So as I mentioned earlier, to understand decoloniality, we needed to understand coloniality, which I've briefly explained. And what I didn't mention is that although this might sound like just intellectual academic concepts, they actually surfaced as a response to the very much lived experiences and struggles of real people facing the system of oppressions in our current world. So this brings us to Aníbal Quijano, the late Peruvian activist and intellectual scholar, to which these concepts are consistently attributed to, and also brings us to the Latin American study group known as modernity slash coloniality, which is also widely known for further developing this framework. So one structure that helps us understand coloniality a little bit better is to divide it into three three main categories, which are coloniality of power, coloniality of being, and of knowledge. So coloniality of power refers mostly to the enduring structures of domination that were established during historical colonialism. So these structures perpetuate hierarchies based on race, class, gender, and other intersecting forms of oppression. It reproduces colonial relations and ideologies that maintain the dominance of certain groups while marginalizing and subjugating others. This includes the concentration of economic and political power in the hands of a few and the maintenance of systems that perpetuate inequality and exclusion. Coloniality of knowledge refers to the ways in which colonial powers imposed their own systems of knowledge and killed or devalued other ways of knowing. Epistemicide is one of the ways in which this happens. 
colonialism worked hard to establish European knowledge as superior and universal, dismissing and erasing indigenous, non-Western and local knowledge systems. Universality is a key concept here as well. Unlike in many other systems of knowledge, Western rationality believes itself to be universal, that the knowledge it produces can be applied to the entire world as if you weren't specific, as if you weren't made by a certain type of human being. That happened because during the transition to the era of enlightenment, Europeans moved from a rationality founded in God to one founded in quote-unquote man. However, although we learned it to be that way, man is not a universal neutral figure, even more so when we are talking about an European white, heterosis Christian male. We also had Descartes, the famous French philosopher that affirmed, I think, therefore I am, implying a division between the body and the mind, and this is also at the core of Western rationality and thought, and its claim of universality and neutrality. And that's because if the body and the mind are two separate entities, one can think and conjecture about reality without ever being actually implicated in it. That's how knowledge that was created from a very specific group of people, bodies and subjectivities was deemed to be neutral and universally valid for other people, with different bodies, different experiences, and different subjectivities. This claim of universality, you know, this capacity, supposed capacity of Eurocentric knowledge to be universal, allowed Europe to erase diverse histories, cultural practices, and ways of knowing, or at least allowed Europe to consider them anecdotal, folklorical, and non-deserving of credibility. So this allowed Europe to put itself into the center of the world and claim its knowledge to be the only valid one, while everything else was nothing really deserving of debating. Finally, coloniality of being refers to the ways in which colonialism and coloniality have shaped individual and collective identities. It encompasses the racial, cultural, and psychological dimensions of colonial domination. So coloniality of being continues to enforce European standards of beauty, morality, and behavior, creating a sense of hierarchy and inferiority, eroding the self-esteem and cultural pride of peoples of colonized descent. It involves the creation of racial hierarchies where whiteness and European norms are upheld as the ideal, while non-white identities are subordinated. And it extends to gender and sexual as well, Eurocentric notions of gender and sexual norms were imposed, erasing and devaluing other expressions of gender and sexuality. Different cultures had completely different understandings of gender. To cite a few key examples, some groups understood gender on factors that did not reflect any type of biological differences whatsoever, but rather relied on social statuses, including the possibility to move from one gender to another depending on certain events happening. While some cultures had a variety of genders, a plurality of genders, others didn't even classify human people in that way whatsoever, so gender was basically non-existent. All of these social, cultural beliefs and norms have been chased down and fought and in many cases destroyed by the violence of Western rationality that does not allow for difference to exist. Understanding and challenging colonialities of power, knowledge and being is crucial if we ever want to dismantle the oppressive and violent structures that hold our society. And although the West thrives in the notion that there is no alternative to, quote, 
quoting famous motto from Thatcher in the 80s, this world we know was built to be this way, was not a given. Plurality of thought, of ways of being in this planet, used to exist, and actually they still do, continuing to resist the many violences that coloniality put them through. Now, when we talk about decoloniality, that's what we are talking about. You know, if coloniality is the combination of all colonial legacies that perpetuate violence, poverty, racism, class inequality, and so on, decoloniality is the combination of all the ways in which we fight back. It's how we seek to dismantle the hierarchies, inequalities, and oppressive structures that were established through historical colonialism and that still live through coloniality. So decoloniality recognizes that colonialism not only impacted territories, but also deeply influenced how we think, understand, and build society. It questions these dominant narratives that have been imposed and challenges the idea that Western knowledge is superior. Decoloniality is a call for epistemic justice, acknowledging that knowledge is never neutral, nor universal, but that it's actually shaped by power dynamics. And when it comes to power, decoloniality challenged the Eurocentric idea of progress and development. It questions the rationality of linear progress that we've talked about earlier, and instead advocates for multiple paths and possibilities. Decolonial thinking will recognize that different cultures and societies have their own unique ways of being, organizing, and understanding the world, and that this will lead to different results. It is also very critical of the notions of progress and development because they are very much destroying the likelihood of us continuing to exist in harmony in this planet. And here in this podcast, we want to bring you along in the journey of critically examining our own beliefs, biases, and assumptions, and to actively work towards decolonizing our knowledge, power, and ways of being. We will be talking more about these ways of being in this world that are other to the Eurocentric ones. We'll be showing you how the idea that this is all there is, you know, this world of violence and inequality and oppression, serves no one but those few that actually benefit from coloniality. We want a world that embraces plurality, equality, justice, and including environmental justice in that. You know, we want a world that recognizes the inherent worth of all cultures, peoples, and known human beings of this planet. To quote the famous Zapatista motto, we want a world where many worlds fit. Thank you, and I'll see you in the next episode.